3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. Today is Tuesday, the 3rd of August, and it's 7am. In the studio today, you've got me, Fung, and Evie. Hi, it's the Fung and Evie show. (laughs) (laughs) I know, it feels so quiet this morning. Um... How are you, Evie? I'm not too bad. I have been staying up very late, mm-hmm. watching various Olympic events, which I'm immediately an expert in. Yeah, of course. Um, I haven't watched that much soccer in the last few years, but now I'm an immediate expert in uh, soccer and what's legal and what's not. <laughs> I did see, yes, I, I didn't watch it, but I did see some very um, frustrated um, oh. fans on Twitter last yeah. night. So do you want to give us a... A rundown of what happened. The poor Tillies, the Matildas, um, were competing to get into the gold medal event um, against Canada, um, which would have been incredible. Um, They were playing against Sweden, who are a very powerful team, Mm -hmm. and Sweden won. Um, Unfortunately, the the biggest point of contention was that uh, Sam Kerr scored a goal and it was immediately deemed a foul and lots of footage after the fact in that she should have actually gotten that goal. <gasps> wow. So we was robbed. <laughs> so how – I don't really understand how fouls work in, in – I'll be honest, I don't work. think a lot of people understand how it work, okay. myself included. Okay. But we were robbed. We were robbed. The important thing yes, I, I'm, I'm deferring to the experts on Twitter about that, but we were robbed. Okay. Well, that's very disappointing. Um, are you, are you going to watch anything today? Um, what else have we got today? There's some more track and field. Um, I've been watching the women's weightlifting as well, mm-hmm. which has been wonderful. Yep. Um, last night was the 87 plus uh, kilo um, final event as well, which was just amazing. Like, I, I just, it, it's always just so baffling to me how, like, I struggle to get something out of a cupboard some days and these women are just chucking like 125 yeah. kilos over their head like it's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Has it inspired you to maybe... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. I, I used to do like a, a very small bit of like powerlifting. Not, like they're extremely novice, but it's definitely inspired me to get back into the gym and take it seriously yeah. until the next lockdown. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see how we go. Um, all right, well, we'll be back with the news headlines um, Um, right after this. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Breakfast. Now to the news headlines. 
Um, this is from uh, the ABC. So Southeast Queensland has uh, joined New South Wales in lockdown, recording 13 cases. The community cases are linked to a growing cluster involving several Brisbane schools. The lockdown was extended by Acting Premier Stephen Miles, making it an eight-day lockdown, ending 4pm on Sunday. Treasurer Cameron Dick announced a $260 million support package for Queensland businesses impacted by COVID-19. He said grants of $5,000 would be available to affected operators across the state. Now, speaking of lockdown in um, uh, New South Wales, um, there's been a petition um, led by Year 12 students across New South Wales uh, protesting um, against the reopening of schools amidst the COVID outbreak. So, um, yeah, uh, some of the Year 12s have um, uh, put up a change.org petition um, and, uh, yeah, they've, they've, they're trying to reach 2,500 signatures. They've got, um, 1,800 so far. Um, and, uh, yeah, so they've, in their petition, they've outlined, um, you know, the current situation in, um, in Sydney, um, and New South Wales and the fact that a lot more younger people, um, uh, uh, being infected. Um, uh, they state 25% of cases are under 19, a figure that will only rise if we are forced into school. Um, These uh, poor kids. Yeah. Like the stress of having to deal with year 12 is hard enough already. Yeah. Uh, but then having to deal with the constant changing environment of living in an international pandemic um, yeah. and, you know, online learning and then self-study and having to go back and forth in and out of school. It's just, yeah. Uh, I do hope that, you know, uh, under-18s do get prioritised insofar vaccines. as getting vaccines. But yeah. yeah. They say, um, actually, they say um, on this change.org petition, even if all the Year 12 students in Greater Sydney received one dose of Pfizer by August 16th, that would only provide... 33% protection from symptomatic infection before the second jab is given. Exactly. Um, they do have um, a list of demands um, that no student or staff in Greater Sydney be returned to school until this outbreak is brought under control uh, to replace Year 12 exams with an assessment framework that does not require students to risk their health, the health of their families and teachers, and take into account socioeconomic differences created by an online learning environment. And that's really yeah. important to note as well. We saw that in um, uh, during Melbourne's lockdown last year, um, and uh, support students from low SES backgrounds with a free laptop and internet dongles, as too many still have slow intermittent internet across uh, access and are sharing equipment. Um, yeah, so and, and treat their demands seriously. Mm. They're you know mature young adults almost who know that like you know they want to protect each other as well as themselves yeah uh, what they're you know what they're asking for is completely reasonable given the circumstances and th- that was a- another important point which is really great that um that they mentioned is that even if they all got their first jab i like not only would it not be enough protection against them getting sick now, but most of them wouldn't even be fully vaccinated until, like, just before the HSC itself. Yeah. So, it, like, you know, 
absolutely prioritise them, but not prioritise them just for the purposes of sitting an exam. Exactly. Um, this has also been backed by um, the Independent Education Union, um, the New South Wales ACT branch. Um, Secretary Mark Northam said there is a huge discrepancy between the health directives applied to the general community and sending Year 12s back to school. Um, on the one hand, we're min- minimising movement among the community and on the other, mobilising 50,000 Year 12 students to go back to school. It only creates greater risk for everyone. Um, the Year 12s in their petition also state, you know, a lot of them, they want to think of their families, they yeah. um, they live with grandparents or they're immunocompromised and, yeah. um, and so going back to school would not only put them at risk but also, yeah, their teachers and their families as well. Yeah. It's, it's a very thoughtful thing for students to think about everyone else around them because okay sure they may not necessarily you know get severely ill by coronavirus themselves but they still have the capacity to be able to spread the virus onto other people definitely um it'll be it'll be interesting um to see where that goes i'm actually speaking to um dr fiona longmuir today from from monash university who wrote a paper about um uh, educational leadership during Melbourne's uh, lockdown in 2020 um, and the ways that um, various principals and educational leaders um, across the, the city and the state um, navigated the, the crisis um, of the lockdown. So um, it'll be interesting to see, um, I guess, from a, from a different perspective, from, from the perspective of, yeah, school, school leaders. Um, okay. Uh, I guess speaking of the Olympics, we, we talked about that before. Um, Simone Biles has been in the news a lot. Um, yeah, she, um, she's quite sensationally pulled out of the Olympics, um, both in her later individual events as well as the team events. Um, her, she's widely considered one of the greatest gymnasts of all time, just being incredibly talented at a very young age. Um, she, so she withdrew from the Olympics finals this week and her quote was, I have to focus on my mental health. We have to protect our minds and our bodies and not just go out and do what the world wants us to do. Mm. Really fantastic and mature for someone her age who has been through so much. Um, just a reminder, she was also one of the people who was, um, affected by the impact of, um, you know, abusive coaches like Larry Nassar. Um, and for her to take charge of the situation and look after herself as a priority is a really big deal. And hopefully I think a lot of athletes are starting to feel more empowered in talking mm. about this. And elite sports is an incredible thing, you know, to be able to, you know, compete with your peers. But it really doesn't mean anything if you're not enjoying it, if you're not able to look after yourself, if you're constantly feeling the pressures of those around you. So definitely, yeah. Um, and you know, it it's just another example of black women being treated in this way. Yeah. Um, there's ex- always that double standard. Yeah, expected to perform um, for the entertainment. Yeah, the joy of others um, not being given, not having the agency and the power to to make decisions for themselves and being um, talked about very um, 
yeah, talked about awfully in the media. Um, very I mean, we patronizing. Saw this, yeah, we saw this with Naomi Osaka. Yeah. Um, not that long ago. So it, it's, um, it, it's the dual thing of needing them to perform for our benefit and then claiming them as ours when they win. Mm. But then when they decide to withdraw or when they lose, then we reject them. Yeah. And that happens in Australia as well. Oh, definitely. Um, well, there is, uh, if anyone is interested in reading more, there was an article in the conversation called The Power of No, Simone Biles, Naomi Osaka and Black Women's Resistance, um, written by Kathomi Gatwiri. So um, we can post a link to that in our show notes. Um, anything else that you wanted to discuss? Yeah, just one last bit of news um, that was quite alarming this week. Um, there's wildfires at the moment in Turkey and Greece and Italy. Mm. Um, they've been roaring for six straight days now. Uh, at the moment, they've killed eight and they've left thousands homeless. Uh, in neighbouring Greece, fire, firefighters attempted to contain a blaze that has destroyed houses and hospitalised more than a dozen people. Uh, this has all been fuelled by a southern European heat wave fed by hot air from North Africa, which has also seen blazes grip other parts of the Mediterranean in recent days. So experts have warned that climate change is increasing both the frequency and the intensity of such fires. Temperatures have been reaching up to 44 degrees in Greece and elsewhere in Europe. More than 800 flare-ups were recorded over the weekend in Italy. Um, yeah, this is climate change is happening now. Yeah. Uh, we're going to see a lot of these kind of you know extreme wildfire events happening in Europe, in California. Yeah, west um, coast, the west coast of the US, um, also in. Siberia? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just the, the kind of temperatures, like, you know, there'll be record-breaking t- temperatures every year, mm. um, as we would, you know, as we saw just just over 18 months ago as well, when we saw, like, you know, the wildfire smoke here. So it's it's one of those things that we'll continue to see and should be aware of that, you know, these kind of extreme weather events are happening with increasing increasing um occurrences and it like you know it's up to us to you know constantly fight for our governments to take that seriously definitely um well that's been the news headlines for today we'll be back right after this armed states are talking big and spending up with no intention to disarm. The Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons provides a pathway out of this mess, and it's up to us to get our government on board. Tune in to ICANN's Banned School to learn more and be part of History in the Making. It's five online sessions from June to September. Check it out and enrol at icanw.org.au forward slash school. That's icanw.org.au forward slash school. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Breakfast on Tuesday. Uh, So today's show, we're going to listen back to a segment from yesterday's episode of Women on the Line. Um, Ayan spoke to Gomeroy 
poet and law scholar Alison Whitaker. Um, and they talked about coroner's court coronial inquests and how they can be incredibly violent um, for First Nations families going through that process. Um, but there are um, there is potential for it to be um, a side of justice. Um, and Alison talks Ayan through some of the reforms um, that could really change um, coronial inquests. Um, we'll also have some audio from um, Liam Elphick, who was on Queering the Air um, just a couple of days ago. He's a Monash University Associate Law Lecturer, and he's also a Victorian Pride Lobby Board member alongside me. Um, and he discusses the lobby campaigns, um, anti-discrimination law in Victoria, and the Federal Religious Discrimination Bill. Uh, he also reflects on Tom Daly's Olympic gold medal and the personal impacts on him. So that's a really um, exciting interview. Cool. Um, and at 8 o'clock, uh, I'll be interviewing Dr. Fiona Longmuir from the uh, Faculty of Education at Monash University. Um, Fiona recently published an article called Leading Schools in Lockdown, Compassion, Community and Communication. So uh, we'll be discussing that um, and how principals and other educational leaders have responded to um, crises, um, not just in Australia, but in other countries as well. Um, okay, well, we'll be uh, back with a track right after this. Luciano and Georgia Keats, supported by the Australian Queer Archive, present Queerways, retracing Melbourne's queer footprint. Queerways is a community art project that maps the queer history of Melbourne, combining our community's stories and voices, past and present, into a permanent interactive record of being queer in Melbourne. Visit www.queerways.melbourne now to record your story in queer history and explore our city's untold history. Queerways, a 3CR supporter. We're now going to play the song Motorcycle by June Jones. This is the latest single from the Nambay singer-songwriter and it was co-produced by Garyon. Um, I really love it. I've been playing it non-stop ever since it was released and it really makes you want to go out for a post-lockdown dance. Um, uh, June will be embarking on a motorcycle tour from next month, so check out tour dates on her social media. Fabric on this vaguely human frame My human frame 
June Jones with her latest track, Motorcycle. So on yesterday's episode of Women on the Line, Ayan spoke to Gomeroy poet and law scholar Alison Whitaker. In this segment, Alison talks us through the institutional violence that First Nations families may face during coronal inquests, as well as the many ways that these processes can be reformed. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this next segment contains the names of deceased persons and discusses state-based violence. If this is distressing for you, please tune in after 12 minutes. For crisis support, you can contact Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. Ayan begins by introducing Alison. Alison is a Gumaroi poet and law scholar. Her article, Indigenous Deaths in Custody, Inquests Can Be Sites of Justice or Administrative Violence, is the focus of our interview. We'll share a link to this article on our 3CR page when this episode goes up as a podcast. Can you tell us when and why coronial inquiries are called? <laughs> um, they're called all the time for all kinds of manners of death. Um, the, the area in which I focus um, and the area in which a lot of First Nations public attention is focused um, is on First Nations deaths in custody. So a coronial inquest is mandatory into any death in custody. Um, in, in some states and territories, it can be um, dealt with in chambers, which is um, effectively not holding an inquest, but instead uh, just holding um, an investigation. But more or less, there is some kind of transparent public review into First Nations deaths in custody and indeed any death in custody in a coroner's court. Right. So criminal trial and inquest are different, right? Fundamentally, yes. So coroners are actually precluded from making any remarks about someone's criminal or civil liability, but they are invited to investigate the, the cause and manner of someone's death, and they can issue findings and recommendations. Mm. And one thing I didn't know is that a coroner is different from a judge. What is the scope of their power? What can they actually decide on? Yeah, a coroner is not all that much different from a judge. Um, it's just that uh, a coroner sits on this very, very specialist jurisdiction. In most states and territories, a coroner is kind of like a magistrate-level judicial officer. Um, they do, however, quite different things than you would expect a, a judge to ordinarily do. Um, they sit over the coroner's court, which by its nature is inquisitorial. So it's concerned with making findings of fact, um, whereas um, 
I guess other courts are more determined with questions of uh, liability, effectively. Um, so coroners can actually do things that other judges can't necessarily, including questioning the witnesses themselves um, and having someone like a counsel assisting, working with them to help run the inquiry. Um, coroners also sit over a court that has multiple, multiple parties who aren't in that adversarial relationship necessarily or formally. Um, so you can have um, many, many, many parties engaged in a coroner's inquest um, who are not necessarily um, litigating cases against one another, but who are representing clients' interests as um, the inquest rolls on. Mm-hmm. Are there times when a coroner would decide against holding an inquest? In First Nations deaths in well, sorry, in any death in custody, usually no. Um, there are a couple of uh, exceptions. The, the clearest one that I know of is in Victoria, um, where coroners can make effectively in-chambers findings if they think that there's no need to hold an inquest. And some of these inquiries take months and even years to be heard. Why is a speedy inquest appropriate? Uh, it depends. Sometimes a speedy inquest is inappropriate. Um, sometimes families can feel rushed in the process. Sometimes the the collection of evidence can be really ineffective if it's under that pressure. Um, but that said, there have been um, massive delays in several really critical inquests that are currently before the courts. And that is a huge problem because there is the issue of people's memory fading, of opening opportunity to state witnesses to say that they don't recall because of the passage of time and the disintegration of evidence, as well as the disintegration of family resolve as they're put through this really institutionally violent process. Mm. For families who've lost a loved one, you know, inquests can be emotionally fraught experience from what you've seen and what you've read. How can families be better supported? Yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic question. Um, where I've seen families be really, really well supported, it's been at the hands of community rather than necessarily anything that a coroner's court or a state party can do. Um, so, for instance, the Dajawa Foundation has just been doing incredible, incredible work in mobilising around families during really critical times after their loved one has died in custody. And it's incredible to see as they grow and build that sense of systematic support led by lived experience and expertise um, has just been really, really remarkable. Mm. When coroner's courts are, especially here in, in New South Wales, um, I'm coming to you from Gadigal and Wonka country, um, especially here in New South Wales, there's this preoccupation with the, the idea of inquests being violent because they are, I guess, you would call them like culturally or emotionally unsafe or that families need. Families are there to effectively perform a, a cultural or emotional role, which in, in one sense is, is critical. Um, it's critical that these processes be safe. It's critical that they observe protocol as much as any other court absorbs protocol. It's really critical that they translate that our cultural protocols into substantive rights in the coroner's court, especially around how autopsies are conducted, how custodianship of someone's body, how the the inquest itself is situated in relation to country, uh, if it's engaging with elders, if it's making that a cultural safe space for families to engage in. Mm. Comma, on the other side of this, there's this sense that if um, coroner's courts kind of magically get all of these cultural facets right, that they'll stop being violent places. Um, and that the only role that families have in this kind of reform process is to be cultural subjects to which the coroner's court can administer. But actually families 
want a, a, a more substantive changes to the law. Sorry, I'm not speaking for any family in particular. I'm just observing a, a tendency. Um, and that is having coroners be able to do, to, to do things like widen their scope, to broaden their scope, to begin to think of First Nations deaths in custody as, uh, state violence, incarceration, policy, um, issues rather than necessarily as quote unquote health issues, which coroners are so often preoccupied with, mm-hmm. um, as well as having independence in investigations as well, real meaningful independence, not having the state investigate themselves, having some degree of community involvement in investigations, clear communication with families, clear community mandated legal resourcing and being able to expand that legal strategy so that families can seek the kind of accountability that they want. So um, I think it's a, a trap to think that the problem in the coroner's court is just cultural unsafety. Actually, there's this whole other suite of things that are not addressed um, if we just apply the cultural safety lens because they're predicated on colonialism and racism. Because coroners are, are there effectively to, to do that role on cause and manner of death. They are quite preoccupied with the biological mechanisms by which someone comes to, to die. Uh, and they're not always helpful in understanding things like, um, the, the violence that we want to draw attention to when we're talking about First Nations deaths in custody. So, uh, a really clear example of that. Um, again, not speaking for the family, but just observing what the coroner did in the inquest. Uh, is the inquest into the death of David Dungay Jr., where someone, listeners may have seen or heard a little bit about his death, um, but where he was pinned down by five guards over a prolonged period of time while saying he couldn't breathe until, of course, he passed away. The coroner was preoccupied with things like the interval between his heartbeat, things like cardiac arrhythmia, his diabetes, um, whereas his family were trying to draw attention to the fact that this emergency action team that's usually reserved for things like, it's effectively a, a militarized unit within Long Bay Correctional Center, was mobilized because David was eating a packet of biscuits and that resulted in him being held down, um, injected with sedatives um, until he passed away. Um, and so there's that kind of tension there between what a coroner is preoccupied with, which is that mechanism of death, and where it actually situates the blame for somebody dying inside. So a coroner is really, really preoccupied with the the person who has died um, to the fault that they can't see the, the, the massive amount of violence that's been exerted on that person. Before I let you go, Alison, so I'm guessing, obviously, you are pretty critical of coronial inquests and investigations, but... Are there maybe one or two positives that can come from an inquest if it's done right? That's an amazing question. Um, it depends what families are seeking from inquests. The victories, victories is a, is a strange word to use for um, a jurisdiction that effectively just puts things on the record and that's the extent to which um, it usually exercises its powers. But um, there have been, um, I guess, recent I would call them incursions um, made by families that have changed, I guess, the the vision of justice that many fa- other families can see happening in a coroner's court. Um, of course, the family of Auntie Tanya Day, um, who have mobilized, especially now around the Dajua Foundation, um, as well as the family of Nathan Reynolds, um, who both 
um, in the earlier example of talking about getting a coroner to talk about structural racism being the victory that Auntie Tanya Day's family had. Um, and then on the other side, um, the, the family of Nathan Reynolds actually getting um, acknowledgement, even though um, their brother's cause of death was described as natural causes, actually getting an acknowledgement that it was a natural causes death contributed to medical mistreatment that Nathan suffered while he was in custody. Mm. So there are, um, I guess, small concessions that families who work, um, who push, who, who strategize can get, but they're not always guaranteed um, and it shouldn't be up to families to wear that burden. And that was Alison Whitaker, a Gumaroy poet and law scholar, speaking with us about coronial inquests and whether they can be sites of justice. Our conversation with Alison was inspired by her article, Indigenous Deaths in Custody, Inquests Can Be Sites of Justice or Administrative Violence. If anything discussed in that segment was distressing for you, please know help is available. For crisis support, call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. Welcome back to the show. If you just joined us, we just played an interview from yesterday's episode of Women on the Line, um, and that was Ayan speaking to Alison Whitaker. Um, in, uh, during the interview, Alison did mention the Dajwa Foundation, um, that does a lot of work to support families. Um, uh, so, First Nations families, um, if you'd like to support them, we can, um, share a link to that organisation in our show notes at the end. Um, you can catch the full episode on www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. Um, and the show also broadcasts every Monday from 8.30 to 9 a.m. Um, we're now going to go to a track. Um, this one is by uh, Nairi, who is a Papua New Guinea-born, Australian-based R&B and future soul uh, singer-songwriter. This single hymn is lifted from Nairi's forthcoming LP, Three, which is due um, August 27. The lyric video for this song has also been released and it is stunning, so please make sure you check it out.
Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean to bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao and cacao mass in bulk. A zero waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically source cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Up next, we have an interview with Liam Elphick, who is a Monash University Associate Law Lecturer and Victorian Pride Lobby Board Member. He came on to Queering the Air a couple of days ago to discuss the lobby's campaigns, anti-discrimination law in Victoria and the Federal Religious Discrimination Bill. He also reflected on Tom Daly's Olympic gold medal and its personal impact. He is an Associate Lecturer in Law at Monash University and a Board Member of the Victorian Pride Lobby, and he joins us on the line. Liam, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Dan. It's great to have you on board. Wow, the Lobby has been so busy over the last few months. Of course, you're a recent Board Member. Your research skills and legal skills must have come in handy so much. Tell us about some of the great campaigns the Lobby's been working on. Yes, it's uh, it's so fantastic to be part of the lobby and doing some fantastic work at the moment. Um, I'm just so thankful to be part of such a wonderful group of advocates for the community. Um, the, probably the most important thing we've been doing is around our Rainbow Pledge campaign, so supporting local government to foster a culture that's inclusive and responsive to LGBTIQ Victorians. Um, so every week now it seems like we have a new council who's pledging to different initiatives, including... Uh, creating LGBTIQ advisory committees, action plans, flying the rainbow flag for Ida Hobbit and the trans flag for the trans day visibility, um, and obtaining rainbow tick accreditation for Rainbow Health Victoria. So it's fantastic to see a lot of the local councils get on board with that. Uh, and we've recently also been awarded uh, a Globe Community Grant to further our work in that space. Uh, we've also got a ton of submissions going on to different sort of reforms happening around Australia, some of the the sexual harassment respect at work reforms um, at the federal level and the Mental Health and Wellbeing Act reforms in Victoria as well. So it's a, it's a great time to be part of the lobby and contributing to that work. And, of course, your area of expertise in the law is anti-discrimination. Uh, that must be so helpful. What are some of the anti-discrimination, you know, uh, provisions in Victoria that need some work? Yeah, there's a lot of work to do in Victoria. I suppose uh, the biggest concern at the moment is the, the, the scope of the religious exemptions here. Uh, so there, as far as Australia goes, there are really wide religious exemptions to the LGBTIQ discrimination protections in Victoria. 
um, that can obviously cause problems because it gives uh, a right to religious schools and religious individuals to discriminate against queer people here. Uh, so I'd love to see those uh, removed or narrowed in, in coming months and years. Um, and you, uh, listeners might also know there's been a recent review of vilification laws and hate speech laws in Victoria and really interested in seeing some stronger protections for queer people here because currently it's not unlawful to vilify on the basis um, of someone's LGBTIQ status. Uh, it's only race and religion that we ban vilification for, so very keen to see that protection extended to our community. Gee, it sounds like the ramifications of the religious discrimination bill, if the previous draft exposure bill is any indication of what we're in store for, will have huge ramifications here in Victoria. Yes, yeah, the, the, the federal religious discrimination bill is probably my biggest concern at the moment as a queer advocate, um, as a queer person. Uh, it's certainly concerning to see how far it's gone in the first two exposure drafts. We don't really know when or if it's going to come back this year, uh, but there are a range of provisions in that bill that, that really concern me and, and uh, might override existing protections we have for queer people. So um, lots of work going on in the background to try and make sure that the, the bill is uh, scaled back a little bit and that it does what it's intended to do, which is just to protect people from being discriminated against on the basis of their religion. I think a lot of us, most of us, should get on board with the idea that someone shouldn't be sacked from their jobs for being um, Jewish or Muslim or even atheist, for instance. But this bill goes way beyond that, and, and that's the biggest concern. It sounds like, though, in Victoria that um, religious organisations already have quite a bit of legal protection to discriminate. Can you kind of elaborate a bit more on that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, effectively what our laws say is that, uh, in Victoria as a general proposition is you can't discriminate against people on the basis of, let's say, their sexuality um, in certain areas like education, employment, provision of goods and services, to use a sort of gay wedding cake, uh, cake example that was the rage uh, several years ago. And then we have these exceptions that, that come along and say, actually, for certain religious bodies and certain religious individuals, those provisions don't actually apply. They can actually discriminate if they're acting in accordance with their religious beliefs. Um, so, you know, the, the right to religious freedom is an important one, but it should never impede uh, everyone else's right to equality and to non-discrimination. Um, so we're keen to see those wound back to make sure that queer people aren't discriminated against. We don't want to see uh, gay and trans kids expelled from schools. We don't want to see gay and trans teachers sacked from schools. And we've seen examples of that in other jurisdictions in Australia, especially Western Australia, in the last few years, especially post-marriage equality. So um, the, the exemptions in Victoria are pretty broad. The, the potential provisions in the religious discrimination bill are even broader, and I think that's, that's my concern. Yeah, it sounds like the religious discrimination bill isn't really about, you know, religious protection in terms of what we've seen with the previous versions. It's more about giving people a licence to discriminate against minorities. Yeah, we, we often use the sword and shield analogy. Um, discrimination laws are meant to be a shield. They're meant to protect you from discrimination uh, to ensure that you have as much a right as everyone else to go about your life and not have that sort of unfair or adverse treatment against you on the basis of being LGBTIQ. Uh, so most discrimination laws, in fact, all of them in Australia, really just do this. They just protect people. The difference with the religious discrimination bill is it hands a sword to, to certain religious groups, certain religious individuals, to actually override other protections. Um, so, for instance, there's one, there's one provision that's, that's probably of most concern called the Statement of Belief provision, 
And what it says is if, if someone's sort of making a statement of belief and acting on that, um, then they can't actually be sued for any discrimination under any Australian discrimination laws, including in Victoria. So that's a really new provision. It's not something we've ever seen in the 45, 50 years of Australian discrimination laws. There are, there are some really good parts of the religious discrimination bill on a shield level. You know, if, if it was just wound back to that, I think uh, almost all Australians would support it. But unfortunately, it's gone way beyond that now. And, and that's really problematic, especially for queer communities. Yeah, it sounds like religion's being really weaponised and politicised, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think that would be um, uh, a fair assessment of where the bill is at right now. I mean, at a fundamental level, the bill ha- has a lot of merit. And I think most of us are keen to see people protected. Um, but to the extent to which it's then gone further and there's a sword being handed to certain groups, that's obviously not something we would like to see. It sounds like your life experience as a queer person and a gay man has given you a wonderful kind of, you know, series of insights when it comes to interpreting the law and kind of, you know, um, really giving insights for your students to help them learn about it. Yeah, I think it's really important as a teacher um, to embed this sort of learning um, in our law schools that uh, laws are not neutral. They have really significant effects on a whole range of people and especially on marginalised communities. Um, and, and thinking about the law with that lens and thinking about the law with our own personal perspectives and lived experiences is really important. And we should have that inclusive perspective about all people. You know, I happen to be gay, so obviously that's the perspective of mine, but I'm keen for students to get um, a range of different perspectives and groups uh, that they can hear from. It's funny because a lot of people say, you know, that don't necessarily have much life experience with the queer community, that, oh, now that we've got marriage equality, you know, what more do you need? But really there's so much more, isn't there? Yeah, and I think um, considering the, the widespread prevalence of discrimination and vilification and harassment of LGBTIQ people in Australia still to this day, Obviously, there's more work that needs to be done um, to improve on that. You know, there's a lot of other work we're doing through the lobby on uh, banking and mental health and other reforms that, that we think are really important still. Marriage equality is a huge step um, in the right direction, obviously, uh, but there are still particular legal reforms that need to be made to really ensure that we have um, as much of a right to participate in society as everyone else does. Yeah, tell us a bit more about mental health and what needs to be done under the law here in Victoria, in your view. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to know where to start because um, the Royal Commission, uh, the Mental Health Royal Commission in Victoria, um, has come up with a range of recommendations that I think are important here um, for a system that I think the, the government has, has quite clearly described as broken. Uh, we're sort of working on our submissions on that at the moment and we'll put out some, some positions on that. But most importantly, we're keen to see a focus on LGBTIQ mental health. Obviously, mental health outcomes for queer people... Um, are, are quite uh, problematic at the moment, especially in the context of the pandemic and the worsening mental health for so many of us in the last 18 months. So we're keen to see a, a, an LGBTIQ framing and lens on that and an understanding of particular problems for um, our communities. What are some of the key recommendations from the Royal Commission that particularly pertain to the queer community? Yeah, I think uh, funding is probably one of the most important things um, that the biggest problem we've had historically is actually securing funding for specific queer initiatives as opposed to mental health initiatives that just happen to include us. So um, the, funding, the funding side of recommendations, I think, is one that uh, certainly I'm most keen to see adopted and to see uh, organisations in Victoria which have a role to play in queer mental health 
funded to do so, rather than just sort of other organisations getting funding and including us in, in, their, in their purview. I think the, the more money we can get to queer-specific organisations who have experience, um, especially with our, our own lived experiences, the, the better that would be. On a lighter matter, uh, it was just wonderful seeing your comments on social media after Tom Daly won the gold in the 10-metre synchronised uh, uh, platform uh, in the Olympics uh, with Maddie Hall, uh, with Maddie Lee, I think, actually. What can you tell us about, about how that affected you? Yeah, um, I've, I've always been a, a gay man who loves sport, which is sometimes a bit of a taboo in our community. Um, so Tom Daly is pretty much the same age as me and came out in the same year in 2013 um, and sort of ever since that moment I've really followed his career closely and to me he's just such a, a source of inspiration for our community in an area of life that hasn't hasn't often, hasn't always and still isn't fully inclusive of queer people. Um, you know, I've, I've worked in, in sporting environments uh, previously myself and I think just seeing someone who is so high profile and quite clearly so successful as an Olympic gold medalist um, use that platform to advocate for our community and uh, for the important things that we need to see change is just uh, not just inspirational to me, but pretty emotional. So to see him uh, do that the other day to achieve on that high level and then in the press conference to talk about how it was something he never thought he would be able to do as a gay man um, really brought a tear to my eye and I'm sure many others around the world. So it's, it's fantastic to have him um, competing at such a high level. Absolutely. And what a great champion as well was Erica Sullivan from the US who came second in the 1500 freestyle. And just how she said afterwards, uh, I'm multicultural, I'm queer, I'm a lot of minorities, and then started talking to the Japanese media in Japanese because, of course, her mother's Japanese. What a great ambassador for the queer community she was as well. Absolutely. And I think it's just, it's, um, it's so heartening to see more and more people, uh, joining this sort of groundswell in support, uh, in sport, sorry. I know that, uh, Proud to Play, an organisation I used to chair the board at, and Pride in Sport has done some fantastic work in Australia, um, to sort of improve visibility and experiences of LGBTIQ people in sport. And I think, you know, the, the fact that we're seeing so many high profile athletes, uh, at these, you know, phenomenally high levels at the Olympics, for instance, uh, say what they're saying and represent the community in the way they're representing and giving us all that, that visibility is fantastic. As they always say, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And it's, it's great that it's happening um, so much now. Liam Elphick, we are out of time. It's been wonderful chatting with you. Thank you so much for joining me today on In Your Face. Thanks so much, James. And that was Liam Elphick from the Pride Lobby. Uh, we'll be back after a few messages. Planet X presents two musically cinematic benefit nights for 3CR at Brunswick Burrito, 102 Hinkle Street, Brunswick. On Friday the 13th of August, Golden Fist Productions present the premiere of the Cranoplan's unconditional loop promotional film. Introduced by the director and the Cranoplans vocalist Simon Strong. The Cranoplans are also playing acoustically, plus there'll be Soviet psychedelic shorts. On Friday the 20th of August, the new Little Murders documentary Don't Let Go will be screening with a Little Murders acoustic show. The film will be introduced by the director Matt Wilson and Little Murders main man Rob Griffith. And the film tells the story about Rob's long-running mod band, Little Murders. 
there'll also be mystery shorts to round off the night. Burritos and drinks available at 7pm before each session. The donation for tickets is only $20 for one night and $35 for both. Limited tickets available online at planetx3crbenefit.eventbrite.com That's planetx3crbenefit.eventbrite.com A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Breakfast. Up next, we have a song by one of my favourite artists, Mitsuki, who is a Japanese-American singer-songwriter. This song, Nobody, is from her 2018 album, Be the Cowboy. My God, I'm so lonely, so I open the window to hear sounds of people.
So that was Mitski um, with her song Nobody. So uh, Dr. Fiona Longmuir is a lecturer in educational leadership in the Faculty of Education at Monash University. Fiona's current research investigates interactions of school and system leadership with student engagement and agency. For over 10 years, Fiona worked as Director of Research in Innovative Professional Practice at Educational Transformations. Fiona also worked for over 15 years for the Victorian Department of Education and Training as a primary school teacher, curriculum and school leader, and leader of school networks. Fiona has published several articles on various topics such as NAPLAN and the student-led climate crisis protests. She's joining us today to discuss her latest article, Leading Schools in Lockdown, Compassion, Community and Communication, which was published late last month. Welcome to the show. Hello, Fiona, are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? Oh, yes, hi. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Um, so to start off with, could you please summarise some of the main challenges that were faced by school principals and other leaders during Melbourne's period of lockdown in 2020? Uh, yes, yeah, sure. Look, I think, you know, we all went through it in Melbourne, so we know some of the big challenges that we all dealt with uh, in and out of lockdowns and, and um the, the difficulties that we all faced being at home and so forth. So principals were dealing with all that, of course, mm. plus... Um, you know, the pressure or the high stakes um, work that they were doing because schooling became so important. It became something normal that students and families um, could have for their days, even though it was in very uh, different ways. Um, and it was such fast-changing um, circumstances. So um, they had to respond really quickly without really much information about what was happening and how it needed to happen. Probably the other main challenge that I think uh, came out was just how emotionally taxing it was mm. for not just school leaders but educators as well. Um, there were One of my participants talked about this notion of feeling constantly switched on um, and I spoke to I spoke to her in about August last year and you know she'd been feeling in that state since uh, you know since probably the middle of March. So it was a really uh, long period of of having to feel. Um, you know, uh, ready to act fast, ready to respond and ready to support everyone in their community. Definitely, and especially when um, there's no, you know, it's really hard to, to um, keep those boundaries between um, uh, work and home life, and especially when you're um, responsible for the well-being of so many students um, as well as, you know, other staff members, it does really take a lot out of you. Um, yes, so I really empathise with that. Mm. Um, your article draws on a qualitative study of the subjective experiences of eight school leaders during Melbourne's first lockdown. Could you please talk to each of the themes that emerged from your research, um, the first being connection to community? Yeah, so this was something I noticed really strongly talking to those uh, eight school leaders was just how much the um, the sense of community was um, even more evident in their work. So, I mean, it's something that leaders are working on all the time in normal situations, you know, being really connected to the community is important, but probably um, during normal schooling time, mm. their focus is probably more taken up with kind of in-school things, making sure their teachers are working well, making sure the students are happy when they're, you know, within the bounds of the school. But, of course, with the 
with the COVID crisis, um, they really had to turn outwards. They had to be really aware of what was happening in terms of, you know, policy and um, health changes and health directives. Um, and they also had to be really aware of how everyone in their community was feeling and responding. Um, they also noticed that actually um, a lot of their families and parents turned to them to um, to help them make sense of what was happening. So this was particularly, I guess, in the initial um, stages when nobody really understood what was happening, how long it would go for, what how it would look, what, what would happen. A lot of families were calling schools and you know and asking principals to you know to tell them what was going to happen what's going to happen next week will my kids be at school will you know um how will it work so they really felt that um enhanced sense of um responsibility to their communities i guess Don't... obviously the other side sorry i was just going to say the other side is that um there was a deeper connection with homes and families because of the you know in-home schooling that happened so um sort of two sides to that yeah, and I guess that leads on to um, the next theme that came uh, from your research, uh, which was crucial communication. I mean, you mentioned that very briefly just just now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Would you mind telling us a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, again, they probably the whole way through, but certainly when I was asking them about, you know, the responses initially, they talked about just how important it was to get that communication um, as right as possible. Mm. Um, and for that, you know, they needed to be fast. They needed to be um, really open and transparent, say what they knew, say what they didn't know. Um, and they needed to be, I guess, sort of a little bit vulnerable or, or open to change. And basically, you know, say what they knew one day and be able to say the next day, well, actually, you know, we've found out more and this is how we need to respond. They were also really um, responsive to feedback, I found, as, um, as they probably, you know, as they went through the weeks, mm. they set up structures to sort of check in with people, to ask how they were going um, and to adapt things as they went. So, yeah, keeping in touch um, with their communities, saying what they knew, saying what they didn't know, um, and keeping those lines of communication open took took a lot of their time. Yeah, and I think that um, what you just said now about um, being really open and honest about about what they didn't know is so important as well. Mm. I think um, it 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 shows um, yeah a lot of care and a lot of responsibility to to be able to be that open um, with with your community, I guess with your stakeholders. Um, yeah. Uh, the third theme that, that emerged um, from this study was care and compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I mean, already through the other themes, you've, you've, yeah. you've touched on that. Um, but what did that look like for, for these school leaders? Yeah, definitely. I mean, they're all kind of interlinked, really. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> the care and compassion pretty much underpinned everything. Um, I guess what I found with this theme and really tried to highlight was how, you know, at times of crisis, at times of uncertainty and disruption, um, you know, the, the leaders really uh, fell back to kind of the basic instinctual values and, um, you know, and purposes of their work and of their schools in terms of really worrying about relationships and worrying about people. Um, you know, that was the most important thing. And they showed this, uh, you know, in lots of ways. They showed this by, uh, you know, having to be 
resilient and to kind of be as optimistic whilst being open and honest as they could be to keep, you know, keep providing that sense of we're all in this together, we'll all get through it. Um, you know, the things like I mentioned with the communication, keeping in touch with individuals, especially mm-hmm. individuals that they knew perhaps were vulnerable. Um, and some schools did things, you know, like provide food hampers for families that were struggling. So there was all sorts of levels to that and it certainly underpinned um, all of their work, I think, at that time. Yeah, and and, and um, it, it just sounds like a, a like that period of time, and I guess it is continuing, um, was incredibly emotionally taxing, like you said, because there were so many aspects um, uh, that they needed to consider, and um, and when you're when you're um, when your work is is relational, um, mm-hmm. which you know in schools that's that's the crux of it. Um, it, it does take a lot out of you. Yeah, um, and then the last theme uh, was possibilities and potential. Mm. So looking at the learn, learning opportunities that came from this, um, what what were some of um, yeah what were some of these learning um, moments for for these leaders? Yeah, I think um, this was really exciting to see that even though you know it had been probably the most difficult time of their careers, that they were all quite positive and optimistic about um, you know what they would learn out of it and what what could come out of it. I think the main thing that that interested me or that you know sort of stood out really really clearly was a, a changed attitude to change. Mm. Um, so across the community, really, um, they really saw that their deepened connections with community, so that, you know, this building of trust that happens through being in people's houses on the screen all the time and people really seeing the work that educators do, um, along with teachers having to um, rapidly innovate and rapidly make, you know, make their own decisions, get their programs running and, um, and, and kind of change their practice in ways that they've never done before really showed them, you know, some of the things that might be possible and just opened, I guess, that attitude of, of, yeah, possibility for coming back and perhaps, you know, being able to do things differently that they never realised they had. Um, One of the stories, for example, was, you know, a school that had been working for two years through a change process of consultations and groups and checking things out and all those kinds of things to put in a digital um, learning platform. And as soon as COVID happened, they had to do it in two weeks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, so it just showed that when everyone, um, you know, really commits to a change, admittedly this time it was a forced commitment, but, you know, it really did uh, get things going and people could cope with it if they had to. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think um, what you said is really, really important and, and really shows, I guess, um, that there are moments to learn and, and opportunities to to progress um, mm-hmm you know, um, during, during times of, of quite challenging, um, uh, and, uh, disruptions. Um, and I know, you know, um, educators and, and teachers really did put in, oh, more than 100% into, into ensuring that their students were engaged and feeling cared for and being, and feeling listened to during this time. And, and I think that's, that's a whole nother conversation, um, for a different time because they've been working, uh, nonstop. Um, yeah. since, you know, March 2020. Um, yeah. uh, but I did just want to touch on um, a few other aspects. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that there were some communities, especially in low SES areas, I mean, we saw with the the um, 
public housing towers that were locked down very heavily. Um, so these communities in particular really suffered during, uh, due to the strict lockdowns. Um, and many students had limited access to computers, internet, and therefore online resources. Um, did this come up in your discussions with school leaders? Uh, yeah, it did. Um, I, particularly probably two of the eight more so were in quite disadvantaged areas and they definitely, you know, referred to the challenges of access to learning uh, more so than other leaders. So it was certainly something, um, something clearly that was happening in these schools. Um, they also spoke of, you know, the, the challenges of making, you know, teaching and learning as relevant as possible across sort of a, you know, a diverse cult, a, a diverse community mm. um, and really supporting all those students in their homes um, as best they could. Um, they had to work pretty hard to, you know, make sure just that the logistics of, you know, providing devices, providing dongles, those kind of things um, to the families that they needed to. Um, and, uh, you know, I've already mentioned that particularly in one setting, you know, they were also providing kind of you know, general support in terms yeah. of things like food hampers and, and so forth. So, yeah, definitely it was um, it was noticeable to those, those leaders. Um, and I know that your study um, dealt with uh, principals and leaders from both government and private uh, independent schools. Were yeah. their experiences vastly different? Uh, look, no, I mean, I think across all eight of them, they were all in different contexts and obviously have different experiences. Mm. Um, the themes that I've talked about were evident everywhere and it was really challenging everywhere. Um, the letters in independent schools probably spoke more about the high expectations of parents and the challenges of transitioning to, you know, an online platform that was perceived as, you know, particularly, I guess, high quality um, for their their families and students, um, but and and yeah, we just spoke about the difference for you know those couple of leaders in really disadvantaged contexts. But you know, I think the core of the work was was pretty similar across mm. all the contexts. Yeah. yeah. Um, were there any similar similarities and or differences between the experiences of educational leaders here compared to other countries? Um, your uh, article did um, touch on some of the um, research that has come from New Zealand, Greece, and the UK. Yeah, so I mean, all all different sort of focuses across those countries, but I think similar things are really coming through in terms of you know dealing with the kinds of challenges that we all experience, and it really indicates the extent of this sort of shared experience mm-hmm. across the globe. Um, we're sort of also starting to note that there are a lot of similarities in what we know about just leading in crisis situations in general, yeah. um, whether it's COVID or, you know, bushfires or floods or whatever it might be. Um, we know, you know, that school leaders become those really essential points for their communities and they, all of those sort of studies seem to indicate similar patterns of kind of stages mm-hmm. that, that we work through when we're in crisis in terms of, you know, the urgency of immediate response and then that turn to sort of focusing on a new normal, whatever that might be. Um, yeah, so there's lots of evidence that suggests that they're pretty common themes. Certainly also, you know, in all of those studies that return to kind of the basic values and basic purposes of supporting communities and supporting individuals yeah. come through really strongly. Um, yeah, and, and I guess speaking of you know, that term, the new normal, which has been talked about (laughs) 
in many different contexts and yeah. um, people, I think, are obsessed with that, that term, the new normal. Um, how has the pandemic impacted um, these leaders' view or on or attitude towards leading? Um, and do you think the lockdown has um, prepared them in some way to navigate crises in the future? Yeah, look, I think, you know, as we've talked about, it was really challenging. And I do think leaders have developed more skills for navigating, um, you know, the fast-paced change. I also think that that idea of shared experience is quite a strong one. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when we have, I guess, a more localised crisis or disaster, there's less people that understand what you're going through, whereas everyone kind of has that that understanding now. I think leaders, um, you know, have actually learned to probably trust themselves more. Um, they know that they, when they need to, they can make decisions that are best for, you know, the immediate circumstances that they're faced with. Um, and, you know, if they've got those good connections to their community, they know that they can, you know, engender the support that they need um, through those uh, opened, resilient kind of uh, attitudes that they develop. Um, they certainly, I think, learnt to be more adaptable and innovative and flexible yeah, <laughs> through the pandemic, and that's yeah. still happening. Um, and generally, I just think that sense of, you know, that it freed them a little bit from the normal constraints of, you know, accountabilities and so forth, mm. and forced them to kind of think and do things differently. And, and as we talked about before, kind of opened up that possibility of how that might continue. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, um, it seems like... Um it was um, a very interesting um, research for you to to speak mm-hmm. to these school leaders and, and really find out what their experiences were like. You know, like you said, all very different given their different um, school contexts, but also, you know, within their communities. It's also there are a lot of differences between them, but, but some real similarities when it comes down to the, the core, I guess, um, yeah. uh, values or... Um, uh, yeah, what they really wanted for for their community, for their students, teachers and parents were were all very similar. Um, And, you know, I guess in Victoria, we're we're back to school. Mm. Um, In New South Wales, um, I I mentioned earlier in today's show that Year 12 students have, um, some of Year 12 students in New South Wales have um, started a petition um, protesting against the the reopening of schools um, as they deem it too um, unsafe for them and their own communities to go back. So um, I guess we'll see what um, will happen there. But um, thank you so much, uh, Dr Longmuir, for joining us on today's show um, and, and speaking to us about Uh, educational leadership during Melbourne's lockdown in 2020. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Bye. Bye. So if you've just um, joined us again on uh, today's show, we were speaking to Dr Fiona Longmuir from Monash University um, to discuss her latest article, Leading Schools in Lockdown, Compassion, Community and Communication, which was published late last month. If you'd like to have a read of it, um, we'll link you to the article in today's show notes. This is Irene Bolger, former Secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. 
We've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. Up next, we bring you a snippet from the Radical Futures Roundtable, Young Climate Feminists in Conversation. It's a great conversation, and this is just a little bit of it. Uh, The forum was organised by the international advocacy group We Do and aired on 3CR's Earth Matters program. Andrea Vega Tronosco begins with envisioning a radical future. To start us off, I'd like to quote Arundhat Leroy, who reminds us that another world is not only possible, she is on her way. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. And just for some grounding introductions and context setting, the climate crisis has raged around us in increasingly violent ways compounded by the systemic violence of white supremacy and the global pandemic. From catastrophic wildfires to hurricanes and oil spills, we are witnessing the devastating effects of centuries of extraction, harm, exploitation, and inequality at the hands of colonialism, patriarchy, and capitalism. In the midst of climate crises, there are, of course, many who have always been and are calling for a reckoning. It has become increasingly evident that young feminists are at the forefront of the climate justice movement. And I think as as young climate feminists, we bring together systemic analyses that always foreground justice, they foreground intersectionality, they prioritize coalition building and solidarity. And we understand that the roots of cis-heteropatriarchy climate change, and environmental injustice, they lie in colonialism and capitalism. And for this exact reason, we work at the intersections of diverse movements, across movements, and among them, understanding that at their core, these are all deeply intertwined. And by grasping at at the root of climate and gender injustice, young climate feminists offer alternatives to the extractive violent systems that shape our current realities, building and imagining transformative worlds that actually do center care, they center hope, they center community, they center relationships, and they center liberation. And we know that any global feminist climate justice movement must heed the leadership of feminists from the global south of feminists Um, who are Black and Indigenous and of young feminists. Yeah, and as you can probably tell, we are your moderators for today. My name is Andrea. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a Dominican climate and environmental justice advocate working on communications and global advocacy at WeDo, and I'm currently based in Brooklyn, New York. And I'm Mara. Um, I'm an Irish-American feminist climate writer, an organizer and feminist, always trying to be better at all of those things, working on policy and advocacy with Andrea, also based in Brooklyn. And in our work at the Women's Environment and Development Organization, we do for short, um, we're fortunate to work in collective with powerful visionary activists from around the world. So I am just so honored to be looking out at this really all-star panel of women who I admire, who I learn from, and who I can't imagine having better people to start off a Friday conversation with. 
we'd love to actually invite you all to introduce yourselves with anything that you'd like to share into this space, as well as something that is bringing you joy. So I'll go ahead and first kick it off to Francis. Hi, everyone. So excited to be here this morning. So, yeah, my name is Francis Roberts Gregory. I am an eco womanist. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And I would say joy. I would say the possibility for transfer, political transformation, as well as love, people showing kindness to one another through mutual aid, that's giving me a lot of joy right now. Mm, thanks, Francis. All right, next I'll bump to Maggie. Hi, everyone. My name is Maggie Mapundera. Um, I'm based in Zimbabwe, and I work for an eco-feminist alliance called Women African Alliance. And I define myself as an eco-feminist as well. In terms of what's bringing me joy, I would say music. It's been an emotional week in terms of the work that we've been doing. And so, so yeah, music. <laughs> Thanks, Maggie. Sanam? Hello, everyone. Evening where I am, but what a great way to spend a Friday evening. I can't think of any other group of people that I'd be with. I'm Sanam. Uh, in English, I'm all right with all pronouns, as I also speak with uh, another language with gender-neutral pronouns. And right now, what's bringing me joy is being part of this conversation. But I think also over the last few months, what has also been bringing me joy is being in different kinds of community, both online and in person, which includes our feminist COVID-19 response collective, our feminist sci-fi book club, the local anti-racism coalition, the neighborhood support group that I joined at the start of the COVID-19 lockdown. It makes me feel both happy and purposeful to be part of all of these and to know that this kind of work exists to build understanding and give support. And thank you for inviting me to be part of this. I'm so excited. Thanks, Sanam. We're glad you're here. Um, next, I'll go to Patricia. Welcome. Hey everyone, um, good evening also from where I'm in now. I'm in Jakarta, Indonesia. Well, uh, I'm Patricia Watimena. I'm originally from Indonesia. I'm an indigenous from a coastal living community called Haruku. It is in the eastern part of Indonesia. I'm working with the Asia Pacific Forum on Women, Law and Development. We are based in Chiang Mai, Thailand. What brings me joy is actually really being part of this gathering. It brings me a lot of joy. I think this gathering is really an evidence of nothing can really stop us to mobilize and really speak out as young feminists, you know, to amplify the voices and then our demands. So, yeah, being part of this gathering is, you know, creating such an amazing feeling. I feel a lot of honor to be part of this of this conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Patricia. And next I'll go to Maria Alejandra. Hey, hello, hola, buenos días. Um, I'm Maria Alejandra, and I'm quite happy to to share this space with you all and and you know, the rest of the panelists. I think I'm I'm excited to see what happens in this conversation and where we get to. I am currently at my family's house in Colombia, and it's a sunny day for a change, which is good. I am currently working and leading the climate and environmental justice work at FRIDA, the Young Feminist Fund. It's a global fund dedicated to resourcing young feminists' initiatives. And 
what is bringing me joy. I think uh, over the past few months, I can I can see so many of my friends and close community producing their own food, me included, uh, building our own like planters and producing our own alcohol, producing our own sweets, medicine, which I think has been a um, a realization for many people in a collective way of how we can be closer to that type of sovereignty. And it's like a, a crack in the system. So I'm quite happy and joyful to, to see that we can start imagining these types of new dynamics. Thank you. And that was Maria Alejandra Escalante, who was rounding out the conversation there, as one of the panellists from the 2020 Radical Futures Roundtable, Young Climate Feminist in Conversation, uh, discussing how we can build and imagine transformative worlds that centre care, hope, community and liberation. And if you want to hear the full conversation, visit 3cr.org.au slash earthmatters. I think, given what we were talking about with the... Um ever-increasing occurrence of wildfires and other um, major events. Major <laughs> events. I, f- I feel like this is going to be more important. Well, this is incredibly important, um, yeah, to centre to center, uh, First Nations communities, um, marginalised communities across the world. Um, Just having people. these kind of conversations. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. Well, we've come to the end of our show. Just briefly to wrap up, we heard from um, uh, Women on the Line. Ayan spoke to Alison Whitaker. We also heard from Liam Elfwick um, from Victorian Pride Lobby. Um, I spoke to Dr Fiona Longmuir from Monash University, and we just heard um, a snippet from Radical Futures, Young Climate Feminists in Conversation. Um Stay tuned uh, for Accent of Women after this um, and to 3CR Breakfast during the week. Have a good morning. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.